0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you something, people. Uh, today I am actually recording from Joanne's mom's house in Collingswood, New Jersey, and I'm going to tell you something. It is freaking cold. Okay, in LA, I have—I swear—I think I've worn shorts for the last eight months. And yesterday, like an idiot, I see there's a, there's a great Philly pretzel place. I looked up 0.6 miles from Joanne's mom's house, and they had dollar pretzel dogs. So, like an idiot, I go, oh, I'm going to walk down, not thinking about the cold. I walk down. It's great. Wind is to my back. Sun is shining on me. I'm feeling wonderful. I get there. Perfect. I get my food. I start walking back, and then I walk into the wind. Now, I grew up back east, but since I've lived in California for 20 years, I have basically lost all my cold weather availability. So basically I froze my ass off and I complained and I cried and my feet were cold and I'm sitting there going, you know what? Maybe next year her mom should come visit us on Thanksgiving and we should just come back and visit in the summer or maybe in September. Anyway, we have we have a great show, and uh, I believe my guest is in Iowa, and he's probably dealing with a cold. My guest is Gary Kroger. How you doing, Gary? Hey, that's good. Yeah, I'm dealing
1: with the cold. It's 38 degrees, and that's actually considered fairly warm for this time of year.
0: Now, now, do you guys? Are you guys? Do here what's Here's what killed me was, and when you live because you lived in LA, and and when when you live in LA, you know there's a certain there's there's three term, words you never, ever deal with, and that's called wind chill factor. And out right. here, it's, I mean, it's unbel- I forget how cold it gets. Now, how, how do you deal with the cold? Is it windy in Iowa? Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Look, there are, there are no trees or mountains between here and the <laughs> Arctic. So we get any polar vortex just sweeps through here like a, like a wedding party. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, we get a lot of wind. And the wind chill factor isn't just some sort of 21st century sissy quality. It's the real feel of the air. So before wind chill factor considerations, people, oh, it's zero degrees, it's cold. But in reality, their skin with wind chill could be I have experienced 100 degrees below zero when considering the wind chill factor.
0: Now, now, how do you? I mean, how do you go out in that? Wouldn't your face just freeze? I mean, I grew up and i I've, I've felt minus ten, minus fifteen, but minus a hundred. Yeah. How? I mean, what what can possibly get you to get out of the house? I don't care if you had like a, an inauguration. I am not going anywhere if it's minus a hundred.
1: Well. Trust me. Anywhere from minus thirty on down is is pretty uh, uh, unlivable. Now you do it because you have no choice. If you decide not to, that means you don't work from December to March. Right. You know you, you simply have to deal with it. But you'll turn on the radio, and you will hear, ladies and gentlemen, the wind chill factor is thirty six degrees below zero. Caution: If your skin is exposed for more than ten minutes, you could suffer frostbite. So you learn to warm up your car. Get in your car. Go to where you're going. Race to the door. <laughs> sit down. Go to work. Go to dinner. Race back to your car. You just learn to do it.
0: That's so funny. It's funny because, like, to me today, I'm like, I'm looking out the window here where I'm at, and I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't even want to go out. But I'm visiting, and I want to do stuff. But I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like putting on a a jacket and a sweater, and, and dealing with it. So that's just we'll we'll take it as the day comes. Now, now, now you you grew up in Iowa. Now, now as as a yes, as a kid. Were you a creative kid? How did you go into this whole path that you end up in the entertainment world? And then then you're interested in politics. What what kind of kid were you? Were you a precocious kid? Because or were you a funny kid? And, and was your household an entertaining? Uh, was there was was there influences of entertainment there?
1: Well, all all good questions, and I have a very clear answer for you. No, I wasn't the precocious kid, but I was a funny kid. I I I grew up in a family with a school teacher, an engineer, a mathematician, and a nuclear physicist. All right, all right? so there was a need for someone to be funny at the dinner table. Right. <laughs> I mean, that sounds kind of funny, but it's true. I sort of filled in a need in the family. Otherwise, it was pretty sober. So I was always kind of funny. I was the jokester at school, but I was a—I was the jokester that the teachers liked when when I was having fun, as opposed to the you know the, the kid in the corner with the dunce cap. Right. Um, <laughs> so maybe a little bit sociopathic, as I had this need to be loved, but. You know, I always liked the positive side of comedy. You know, I always liked being on the side, kind of Jerry Seinfeld, where you don't have to, you know, wait in the toilet. You can actually find the funny side of life from the positive, crazy experiences that we have. That's always been kind of my uh, template, you know, my how to navigate this
0: world. So, so you do that as a kid. Now, now when you're a kid, when you were a kid, I and when mean, you were getting older and getting into junior high and high school, what were your aspirations? Did you did you sit there? Because I know you went to Northwestern, I believe, and and which is a yeah. which is a great school. What was your major, and, and when did you decide what you were going to major in?
1: Well, first of all, you know when it's hundred degrees between uh, below zero between this, you stay a lot, spend a lot of time inside talking into your reel-to-reel microphone with funny voices. You know, I mean, seriously, you learn to do things when you don't have a lot of things around you. You know, it's no surprise that David Letterman and Johnny Carson and uh, there's a whole world of clever, funny people that come out of the Midwest. Part of it is you're dealing with the elements, you're dealing with uh, solitude, because, you know what, you, you can't go to the ballpark every day of the year. And so, my my I watched a lot of TV as a little kid. You know, I wanted to be Andy Griffith or Dick Van Dyke or Red Skelton. Those were my um, professional role models. And that being, and so when I got to high school, I did every play and music contest and speech contest. And in the Midwest, Northwestern is our... Harvard of Entertainment, if you will, and so I found myself there, and it's a pretty straight line. When I was there, I run into Brad Hall, Julia Louis Dreyfus, and others. We started a theater company. We were all relatively intelligent, and it sort of created this pathway.
0: So they they were also at Northwestern.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's where I met everyone that became um, the the. We became each other's instruments by which to carve out this career. Now, Julia, I would say, is probably the most successful of any of us. But her training ground was right there with me and her husband, Brad Hall, and Paul Barras, and, and others.
0: So, so when you were getting this group together and you, know, you were learning and you were getting you know, the support of each other, which is always good because you had a tight group... What were your guys uh, when you were at Northwestern? When you're putting, you know, you're getting this all this thing going on. What were your aspirations for when you graduated? Did you have a? Did you like all talk about? Okay, we're gonna go to SNL. We're gonna go to Second City. We're gonna go to Hollywood. What steps did you? What What were you guys planning for your future? Because you were. In a group, you are at a good school, a respected school, so you had some doors would probably open. What did you guys talk about, like, for when you got out of graduation?
1: You know, honestly, what we talked about was getting an equity card, and we talked about maybe someday we can make a living at this. You know, when you really enjoy it, and it's what you really do, of course you want to be successful, but we never sat around hoping that, or, or thinking that this would we didn't have a, a path like that. We loved the Beatles and we loved Monty Python. And so long as we were able to do what we loved doing, we wanted to see where it would go. But we didn't have the big grand prize at the end. I remember right before I got Saturday Night Live with Julia and with Brad and with Paul, I was hoping to get a local commercial for Steak and Shake okay. so that I could pay a few bills. You know, that was my goal was a Steak and Shake commercial.
0: So you guys were just, I mean, as I just said um, you guys were in it for the art and the love of it. And if something benefited you, then you would just take that like, hey, you know what? This is great, but we have this, what we're doing, which we love also.
1: Yeah. You know, in the back of your mind, of course you want to be a company that's doing really clever, socially conscious, politically conscious material like Monty Python. And I'm sure that we entertain privately these fantasies maybe we'll be the American Monty Python, you know? Um, but again, there wasn't a plan that was set out. All we wanted to do was to keep doing shows, keep making each other laugh, and, and, and the approval of audiences who would respond by saying, wow, that stuff was really clever. It was really intelligent. It was about something. Um, that's what fed us.
0: So you graduate, and then how is the process end up being on Saturday Night Live? Did you guys, did you, you graduated, I believe, in 81 high school, or college? And now, and and Saturday Night Live, you joined in 82. Is that one? Right, exactly. Again, there was
1: no path. I had no aspiration whatsoever to be on Saturday Night Live. I, I, you know. I thought that maybe I'd get to New York with my friends, we'd live together, we'd do theater, maybe I'd get on Broadway, whatever. Um, we're, we were doing a comedy review of all of our sketch material that we'd accumulated over several years, right next door to Second City. And literally, after one show, we were asked if we would go backstage, we, we were asked to meet Dick Ebersol and Bob Tischler, who produced at that time SNL. They literally said to us, Could you be in New York in a week? So it was like winning the lottery.
0: So you guys there was
1: no plan.
0: You guys didn't even audition. It just they just they just came yeah. and said, Hey, guys, we like you. And it was all, there was four of you that they, yeah. they took, right?
1: Yeah. Balvaras came as a writer with the hope of being a featured performer. Um, yeah. Now that's the that's the fairy tale part of the story, and it's a wonderful story. Now, the truth is, and Julia will say this, too, the SNL experience was rough on us. Because once we got there, we were sort of personas non gratis. Um, we weren't really embraced by the others until, in, initially. We were seen as threats. The writers didn't welcome us, and the producers didn't really help us or encourage us. Over time, we developed great friendships, you know, Tim Kazerinsky, Mary Gross, Robin Duke, and I'm very friendly with Joe Piscopo still and and everybody, but at the time, we got there and we felt that our feet were nailed to the floor. We weren't really allowed to keep creating the kind of comedy that got us there. So I know that everybody was very frustrated.
0: What well, what what is it like though when you think okay you're just out of college you were yeah. just a while ago as you said hoping you get a steak and shake commercial and then all of a sudden you're right. you're whisked away as you said in somewhat of a fairy tale to New York <laughs> in a week I mean how do you even get your mind around that because it's SNL you're going to New York yeah. your kids I mean most of us you know when we're at that age we're Getting out of college, we're looking for a job. I mean, me, I personally, I, I sold fax machines, my first job out of college, when fax machines were big and you can make money, which was like for six months. But how, I mean, what was your, where was your mind at? What was your mind frame? I mean, were you intimidated also? Were you excited? I mean, there had to be a mix I of... Ex-
1: I was extremely intimidated. I was in awe of it all. Here I'm this basically, and I still am, this kid from Iowa, and I didn't have the teeth, I didn't have the claws, I didn't have the confidence that was necessary to be on network television every week. So I became a little more observational, but as frustrating as that could be, I would still walk around New York saying, well, you know, how bad are things really? I'm I'm getting paid to live in New York and I'm on TV every once in a while. That's not too bad. So that kept me buoyant enough. But at the same time, you're right. It was, I never lived in New York. I never had to buy my own furniture. I never had to, you know, right. take the subway to Rockefeller Center by, with seven million people around me. It was, I'm not really sure how we navigated that. I couldn't have done it without Paul, you know, my friends. I couldn't have done it without them.
0: Now, now, when you when you first hit that stage on your first show and your live appearance to SNL, and you know a ton of people are watching you, what was going through your head when you sat there? Was it like, "Wow, this is this is amazing," or you like, "Wow, am I going to screw up?" Because you know when you perform, you know when I used to do stand up comedy, I used to worry when I go to a show. I'd be like. Well, are there going to be people there? And if there are people there, are they going to let, think I'm funny? But, and then after you do it for a while, you get over that, and you go, okay, well, there's going to be people, and if not, I'll just make them laugh. What was going through your mind that first night you're on stage, and you're an SNL, which for, you know, what you did in college, it's the mecca. It's the homeland. What was it like for you the first yeah. night when you got featured, and did you tell everybody to watch, and, and what was the reactions to you? Yeah. Yeah, okay,
1: you tell everybody to watch, and everybody's going to watch anyway. And not only your friends, but you're a little bit of a story when you're plucked as these, you know, little green sprouts out of Chicago, and suddenly a couple weeks later, you're on SNL. Um, all eyes were on us. I remember the moment vividly because Brad and I are playing two effeminate art critics at a uh, Eddie Murphy. He had a character that was a real street guy, and, and the erudite upper crust of New York loved his stuff no matter what it was you know you probably remember the character and it was the first sketch on the first show Chevy Chase is the guest host and Brad and I were among the I think we were the first shot and we knew as soon as that red light was on on that camera and there was no time delay that 12 million eyeballs or 20 million whatever it was 20 million eyeballs would see us in real time. And I remember thinking, the countdown, five, four. And it was mind-blowing. You are doing just what you said, going, oh, I hope I remember my one line. I hope (laughs) that I, you know, I'm not offensive. I hope all of these things. And then it's over, and you get a little more used to it. And even by the end of the show, you start to feel after one show, hey, I'm a little bit of a pro now, because once you overcome that, pass through that first membrane of, holy cow, uh, it gets a lot easier. You realize, I survived. And so from then on, I never thought about the fact that people are watching me.
0: Okay, so you, you I mean, know you were you were because it's probably like what a, what a big league baseball player goes through, you know, until he gets that first yeah. hit, he's probably going, I gotta get this first hit, I just gotta get the first hit. Right. So they give the ball to my mom, and and I'm I'm fine. And then after that, you're right, you probably just put it behind you because basically when you when it when you break it down, it comes down to it, it's your job. So once you know, it's like anything. Your first day at work, if you're a teacher, you're probably terrified. Like, oh, what if the kids are unruly. And once you get that first under your belt, you move on. So, now what was your progression in the show? Like you said, you know, at first you weren't accepted. How long did it take for the other cast members to sit there and go, hey, you know what? These little sprouts, they're good. They're good eggs. We like them. How long did it take?
1: Yeah. Well, it didn't take that long. Although at the very beginning, we were just introduced to the cast poorly, to the writers poorly. So, there was different. There were two different camps. There was us and them in the very beginning. Those walls break down fairly quickly because you're in this crucible week after week after week together. So the friendships develop. However, the politics of it are what they are. You're going to write for Eddie Murphy and, and Joe Piscopo and later on Billy Crystal, Marty Short, because they're the stars of the show. Writers want to get their material on. And what, you know... Writing a sketch for, for Eddie Murphy was like being a violinist with a Stradivarius. I mean, you know, of course you're going to do that. So we were picking up table scraps just to be part of the show. I had developed a reputation that I'm proud of, that Kroger can do anything you throw at him, and he'll never make waves. He cooperates. He's not egotistical. And I appreciated that, Um You know, persona. I appreciated that I was perceived that way. Now, at the same time, it's show business. The squeaky wheels generally do get the grease. So I wasn't that squeaky a wheel, and I didn't get a whole heck of a lot of grease. But those aren't sour grapes. That's just the way it was. And that's who I am, and that's how I navigated those waters. Uh, I look back today, and I'm very proud of the fact that I didn't have temper tantrums and
0: hissy fits and get angry at people, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no, no, you know. I might be a bigger, if I had. Right. But, you know, I got to see me first. Yeah, but, but you, you might have also been blackballed because everyone said he complains too much. You <laughs> know, that's the, yeah, there's yeah. always the different roots. Now, what do you think, you know, because, you know, I was, when I was, I always do research my guests and they said, you know, you and Joy Weiss played uh Donne and Marie and uh-huh. then you made out and yeah. you know now with with all like the, the political correctness and stuff like that how do you think a sketch like that would be looked at now do you think for someone who was involved in asset when you and when you were in there it was you know eddie murphy you know they wrote some hard-hitting stuff for him you know it wasn't pc yeah. stuff as a person who was involved in it and a person who's you know, and you can look back on it and you see the, the state we are in now. Do you think the stuff back then would have flown now, or do you think it would have been shot down by like the, the network?
1: Uh, a complicated question, and I, it's one that I think about, and I don't think that I've come up with an answer for it. You know, we did some great satire on media, the the, the shooting of Buckwheat, for example, and it's a perfect. And we did this wonderful piece where Eddie Murphy went in whiteface and went on a bus to find out how white people treat other white people. I mean, this is heavy social commentary, right? Heavy. And it was a huge hit at the time, and it made its point. Um, Could that be done now? Maybe not. Now, at the same time, you mentioned me and Julia, you know, two siblings kissing as Donnie and Marie. Well, I just watched, you know, SNL a couple weeks ago with Donald Trump kissing Vladimir Putin. So... Certain things yes, certain things no. At the time, I remember we always had a fight with the censors. If we wanted to say this and the censor said no, what we would do is put something even more extreme into the script so then we would back up in a compromise to what we really wanted to do. Make sense?
0: Right, Oh yeah, because, yeah,
1: Yeah, so you'd say something really outrageous, the censor said, no, 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 well, how about this? Okay... Well, that's what you wanted in the first place. So that was a way that we used to sort of manipulate the standards and practices. I'm sure they still do it that way. I've seen things on SNL in the last few years where I go, I don't think we could have done that. At the same time, I see stuff that we used to do, like what I was just saying, and I'm going, I don't think they could do that now. Um, I think it's more of a comment, a commentary on the <laughs> complex polarity of America and are changing values and perceptions and the contradictions more than it is um, comedy itself, okay. you know. I, I, and I think it will continue to change. And with this ushering in of this new climate in America, I don't know. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump has already tried to stop you know imitations of him that are unflattering on SNL. Where where is this going to go?
0: I don't know. It is, you know, it is really weird because you know you always uh, you always think of SNL. They always lampoon people. I know you, you you yourself played Walter Mondale, I believe.
1: Yeah, I did.
0: So yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. SNL has always lampooned presidents. I mean, you know, look at when Daryl Hammond played Bill Clinton. You know, they they they've always done it in a cartoonish manner. And the funny thing is when you say about. You know, him saying, getting all pissed off about the unflattering nature. Well, most of the time, their people are, it's unflattering nature. I remember years ago when Perot was running and he had his, uh, I forget his uh, vice president uh, candidate. But my mom would laugh because Phil Hartman played him just like a complete nutbag. And no one got upset because that's what SNL does. That's what I laugh about. It's right. like it's a parody show. It's satire, and that's what's funny with the climate now. It's like you you can't sit there and change a show just because you're a president elect saying, "Wait, they're making me look they're making me look funny." But the, you need to look at yourself in a mirror and go, "Well, you know, your hair's a little crazy, and you have a really bad tan." Yeah, right. You know, it's <laughs> like it's like you're asking for it. It'd be like me walking down the street with a rabbit outfit and. Getting pissed off right. someone that said, What are you doing? Why are you dressed like a rabbit?
1: Exactly. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, but but we have a new animal in the world. Well, it's been getting bigger and bigger over the past several decades, and that's that media is controlled by corporate interests that, that are ruled by money and sponsorships. So even though I know Lauren Michaels would never cowtown, it would never, you know, bend to say, Oh, well, we won't do that if it offends you, mister Mr. Trump. You know, he has to answer to General NBC and General Electric who do listen to the influences. Now, I'm not predicting that SNL is going to cut back, but, you know, it, our messaging is controlled by money. It is controlled by uh, who's spending the dollars, who's doing the sponsorships. Um, you know, free speech is always under duress. Uh, in 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 today's world, so uh, we'll see where this happens, but where this goes, I I don't know.
0: It is going to be crazy. Now now, when you your last year at SNL, did you guys know like there was going to be a changing of the guard? Were you prepared for it, or what happens? And what does that do to a, a young? Because as I said, you you guys were still young. What does that do to a young actor's psyche? Even though you know you were glad to be in the game, as you said. You plus get used uh, to something. I mean, what was that like, and, and what do you psychologically go through? I mean, what happened when Lorne came back? Is that what happened, and he decided to change the uh, guard?
1: Well, I have an interesting... You know, I, I was let go after my first year. Now, people don't really know that, um, but I just didn't make any of a splash, and you know that your head's on the line. It's like being a, an athlete. If you don't perform, you might... You, that... Not get traded, just get fired. Um, and I was let go. Uh, Brad Hall really stood up for me heroically, saying, you never gave this guy a chance. So I was brought back for considerably less money, but happy to come back, and I made much more of a splash the next year, and they renewed my contract. But they didn't renew some other contracts, and they hired Billy Crystal and Marty Short and Chris Guest. Now, that year was a fabulous year. And I was part of it. Julia was part of it. But those guys, Marty, Billy, Chris, they only wanted to do it for one year. They did not want to be the new cast of Saturday Night Live. They just wanted to do it for a year. So they all quit. Well, once your stars had quit the show and Dick Ebersol wasn't interested anymore either, the show was over. SNL was over in 1985. Lauren Michaels was either coaxed back or said, I will start the show over again if you let me start from square one, like I did the first time. The network said yes, and so there was a new show that fall. So it seems like it's continuous. Nope. SNL was over in 85. Lauren came back and started over and cleaned house. So I was, you know, out of a job because I was not part of Lauren's you know, I was, I was part of Dick Ebersole's era. I was part of the show that was now over. So, you know, my early experiences in show business really were up and down. It was like, holy cow, there is no security here whatsoever. This isn't like my dad who put on a necktie and went to work. This is going to be a topsy-turvy life. Well, you know, so I moved to L.A. right after that. I was prepared for what the reality was. You're always looking for work. You're always picking yourself up by the bootstraps. That's just the way it is.
0: Now, now, when you moved to LA, I always, I always wonder where my guests. I always ask my guests because I know where I first lived in LA. And you had some, you had money, some money because you were working. Where did you choose to live in LA? And was it basically your first time in LA? And then, what, what area did you live in when you first moved there?
1: <laughs> this is great. I'd been there to visit, you know. I'd audition for things. When you're on SNL, they'll bring you out during the summer, and uh, you know, I auditioned for the classic ski school movie. (laughs) Those little stupid, you know, sub-level movies that are always around. You know, so I've been to LA, but I moved to Beverly Hills adjacent. (laughs) So those are those old, built in the '40s townhouses. Just east of the Beverly Center. And I thought, was well, great. Beverly Hills adjacent. Not spending a whole lot of money, you know, learning the lay of the land. Well, I realized it was nothing like Beverly Hills whatsoever. But at the same time, it's community of actors, you know, artisans in the business. So wherever you land in L.A., as you very well know, you're surrounded by other people just like you. Over time, I bought a house in Los Feliz, I bought a house in the Hollywood Hills, moved to the valley. You know, I've lived everywhere as I learned where I wanted to live or what I could afford. But I first landed east of the Beverly Center.
0: That's so funny, dude. That's like this, LA is like the only area that uses that word adjacent. Like you never see like in Philadelphia, adjacent. center city adjacent. You know, it's true. It's like, it's like, uh. You know, Marina del Rey adjacent, which is like Playa Vista. Right. You know, it's like Hollywood or like I live in Burbank, Burbank adjacent, which is like North Hollywood, North Hollywood adjacents, Van Nuys, Van Nuys adjacent, Panorama City. They just go down the whole list and they do adjacent, yeah. adjacent. So so when you when you landed in when you landed in L.A., did you get auditions and and meetings and an agent a new agent because you have been on SNL did that help you oh
1: yeah I had an agent when I was on SNL so I was with ICM from the very beginning I got a manager from the very beginning um I had a development deal at CBS I I had everything that you hope to get except a hit series out of one of those situations you know I had this I got a pilot went for half a season no you know I had every advantage going in, but it's always a crapshoot. You know, it's always a crapshoot. If you have a development deal, there's no guarantee that it's going to lead to a good show. You get a show on the air, there's no guarantee that it's going to get picked up for the rest of the season or the next season. None at all. So that was my reality. I look back at my 20 years in L.A. as a working actor, and I was a producer and I was a writer as well. I wore a game show host. I wore many different hats. My goal was as it was when we started this conversation. I was talking about being doing theater in Chicago, graduating from Northwestern. I just wanted to work. I wanted to pay the bills. I wanted to be able to do things, have a life. But more than anything, I just wanted to be a working person in the entertainment industry. You you
0: had and I was successful at that. You were successful and but did you ever get frustrated because as you know you did as you said you had the development deal. And I know so many uh actors I talked to on my show who, you know, has said we've been in so many pilots. Like someone's like I think I was in more pilots yeah. than Clooney. You know, and the thing that people don't understand is just getting that pilot is such an accomplishment where people oh, people hi. would die. I mean, you know, people would die to sit there and go even just be I had a guest spot in a pilot. Did you ever start getting frustrated because you were getting the breaks, you knew you had talent, else you wouldn't get the breaks? Did you ever get frustrated that stuff, you know, even though you wanted to be that working actor, which you were, did you ever start getting frustrated that after a while going, man, what the hell is this? Why can't just one of these shows take?
1: Well, you know, uh, I wasn't frustrated until about 20 years had gone by because, Basically, for me, it was like this. You're right. Every job, and people don't understand this, you have to not only, get through the first audition, the second audition, but then you go to the producers, and then you go to the network. There are so many hurdles that you have to pass flawlessly to get the job. And I did several pilots. I did lots of guest spots. It was always a process of one audition, another audition, another audition, and usually another audition to get there. But here's the thing about maybe it's me, maybe it's just my psyche, maybe it's because of my experience at SNL where I already knew how the treadmill worked. I looked at every single day as possibly winning the lottery. So in other words, if I went to an audition, I never felt like, oh, my God, the odds are slim. Oh, my God, I've already been through three. I look at it like maybe today this is going to be the part that's a hit, and I get it, and it goes into series, and all my dreams come true. And then when it didn't, the next audition would be, this just might be the one. I It might go all the way, etc., cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I maintained that psyche. For most of my career. Um, At the end, I was married, I had a son, and all of a sudden, it was Los Angeles that I didn't like. I didn't like the air, I didn't like the crowds, I didn't like the traffic, uh, I didn't like the cost. And that's really why I got out 13 years ago.
0: Now, when you were still in, what was it like when you started hosting Game shows, and how did that come about? Because what people don't understand is, you know, being a game show host, it's not an easy job. I mean, true, Alex, mm-hmm. Trebek, Alex Trebek has an easy job. He just likes to be pompous. <laughs> I mean, he just sits there. He doesn't, I, I always bust his chops just because he's always, he's, well, do you watch Jeopardy? Oh, yeah. Well, you know what I always notice, and, and Alex always has a tell. I would love to play poker with Alex Trebek because whenever the Daily Double is coming up, he takes a slight pause before it says a daily double. And I always sit there, I go, Alex, you just gave it away. But besides him, being a, a uh, game show host is tough work. Because if I'm correct, you guys take a... But you tape a few in a day. It's not like you just go... It's not like you oh, tape, you, you yeah. go, hey, well, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. What, what, how, how did you get approached to start doing game shows? And was it something that you were like, hey, you know what? This should be fun. And then, you know, I know you did the Newly game, I believe, which you know that you're taking over a legendary show. Yeah. How did the whole game show yeah. host start? It was kind of
1: interesting because like I said... I just wanted to work. Of course, there are actors, and they're probably smart to be this way. who will say, I'll never do commercials because it'll put me in that category. I'll never do TV because it'll keep me from films. Now, that's not so true anymore, but at the time, Hollywood was pretty segmented that way. And the person like me would say, sure, sure, sure. um, That wasn't the cool way to be. There's no question about that. But I'm a Midwestern kid. I just wanted to work. I did a series that was short-lived with George Hamilton, and he and I remained friends, you know, when it was canceled. And one day, uh, I ran into him, and he was doing a new daytime talk show with his ex-wife, Alana Stewart, the George and Alana show. And I said, hey, George, I'd love to do something on that with you. Well, eventually, I find myself writing, co-producing, and I was the on-camera announcer on the show. And we did it for a season, and the company, Reicher Entertainment, that produced it really liked me. I was funny, great rep- repartee, uh, had a good on-camera presence, obviously, I've had plenty of experience. And they asked me if I would consider the newlywed game, because they're doing a new version of it. So I did a few tests for it, they liked what they saw, they offered it to me, and I did a season of the new newlywed game. That led to uh, Beat the Clock. That led to, you know, it just started to sort of uh, steamroll at that point. Um, but like you say, the job isn't just stand there, smile, and, and read the score. No. You've got to keep the show going. You've got to know what the game is. You've got to know what the answer is. You have to know what everybody answered. You have to know everybody's relationship. You have to know where we are on the clock. You have to know where the commercial break is. It's very complicated and you have to make it all look very easy with a smile but again at the end of the day my job was and i was handsomely paid was to host a show and hand people cash and prizes that doesn't suck no you know it's a very positive experience but also to your point five shows in a day was a slow day we usually did seven shows in a day now, Believe me, when that last show was over, and then you'd do that for three days in a row. So, um, I was tired by a Wednesday night.
0: So, basically, so the show, okay, you'd say you do five to seven shows a day. How long would the actual half hour show take? I mean, what time would you get there in the morning? And would you have like a half an hour break between the shows? Yeah. And how would your schedule yeah, go? Because. It it seems like it would just be fatiguing. You'd be be fatigued.
1: Yeah, it's just fatiguing, but you drink a lot of coffee. You know, I would get up at 5 o'clock. First show would probably be 8. Every show is about an hour and a half, with about uh, a half hour in between to reset for the next one, Uh, get prepped for who the guests are. Um, And that's how it went. And when, you know, the end of the day came, and I don't even remember when the day would end, um, you're tired. You go right to bed, you wake up, leave for the studio at 5 o'clock in the morning and do it again. Now, it's hard work.
0: It is hard work. Yeah, I mean, it would. And plus just, just what people don't understand is just the, you know, besides standing and hosting like that, just the mental fatigue for <laughs> yeah. the fact that You know, what if you sit there and you, if you felt off sync for one show and then you probably have to sit there and go, oh God, I got to do five more of these. I mean, did you ever just have days where you're just like, oh my God, I can't do this?
1: Well, the the neat thing about game shows is that it's a constant restart. You know, you're, you're always fine. If the last segment failed, you've got the next segment to, to succeed. So there's all these opportunities to just dig down deep and, and jumpstart the engine again. My biggest thing after seven shows and then seven shows is you start to lose your voice. You know, you you just start to uh, sound strange. So I would be drinking tea with a shot of bourbon and honey and lemon all day long. Uh, I think I kept my energy up from running to the bathroom so much. <laughs>
0: And I, I want to just quick question, as I looked at your uh, IMDb page and stuff like that, what was it like, and you got, I mean, it was a small part, but what was it like to work with Christopher Guest in the big picture, which the big picture is a movie I really enjoyed? Yeah. Um, did you, did know, go did, ahead. I, go ahead. No, did you know, like, when you worked that one season with Chris, well, you, you were on a season with Chris, right, on yeah. SNL? What? Did, did you know, like, his, that he would just end up becoming like this genius director because he's so, he's just such, his movies are so amazing. I mean, did you know that when you wrote yeah. them?
1: him? Uh, I had a, an inkling because, you know, he'd already done Spinal Tap. Now, even though he didn't direct that film, you know, his reputation was already out there as one of the cleverest, um, at, at, at creating characters, ideas, concepts. You know, he had quite a reputation already. Um, So it wasn't a huge surprise to me when he started making these movies. He literally asked me if I would play this small role on the big picture. And um, it was scripted, but he allowed for improvisation. And even though I only worked one day, it's a very memorable little scene where I'm one of these studio executives criticizing Kevin Robin or Kevin Bacon's script. Um, And you know it's just one of those things where he, he let he gives you the script of course it's good but then he lets the actors very freely you know, JT Walsh was in the scene freely explore the scene so i really really enjoyed it uh, that's his process is to really allow actors to own the material
0: now so you did that and you know you and you you, you were in the tv you were in snl you were doing the game shows, and also in a point of your career, you you were on Dilbert as a voiceover. How did you get into the voice world? I mean, it's like you've done, as you said, you've done everything. You're like you're like the utility infielder in baseball. It's like, hey, he can play second base. Hey, you know, we, we need a pitcher in the ninth inning because we're out of all these pitchers. Oh, let that let, let you know, let Gary go throw. He, you know, he can probably throw a slider, but but it'll be all right. How did you get into the How did you get into the voice thing?
1: Well, that's exactly what I was called. I was called the utility infielder. Lots of people in the business considered me that way, including people like Chris Guest. Hey, if, call up Kroger. Ask him to do Robert Mitchum. He can do it. Even if he doesn't know how to do it, he'll figure out how to do it. I had that reputation. It's, I think what sustained me. One of the things that happen when you have an agent, when you have a manager, is they, if you're willing to try everything, they will send you out on everything. So I went out for myriad commercials, TV shows, movies, and voiceover auditions. Well, I I have a pretty flexible voice, and so I was well-received in the voiceover community. I've done a lot of announce jobs. I've done a lot of narrations. And then I just sort of fell into cartoon voices. Um, And Dilbert was one of those examples where I did that for a season, and I was the utility infielder voice. Like, well, who's going to do that? Well, you know, some sort of... Russian spy. Give it to Kroger. Um, there was another actor in there. His name's Tom Kinney.
0: Yeah. SpongeBob. One, and
1: Tom, one of the brilliant u- utility men as well. And Tom comes in with some sketches, uh, of a new cartoon. He says, yeah, they're asking me to do this voice for this character called SpongeBob SquarePants. And I'm looking at the pictures and going, yeah, what, what's he going to sound like? And he did the voice. I said, wow, that, that might be really good. Maybe that'll go somewhere. <laughs> well, there you go. You never know.
0: So now you... But okay. It,
1: no, I was just going to say, it's just one of those things. I, I look back and I go, yeah, I did a lot of cartoon voices. I used to do Batman. Um, again, one of the henchmen du jour, you know, would often be me. Um, I had a very uh, colorful career you <laughs> and I look proudly back at
0: that. Now, you're going along, you know, you're doing the game shows and you said it was 13 years when you left. What was the final factor? Why do you think you started hating L.A.? Were you just frustrated because you had success? You know, you you, you did, you made, as you said, you made a good living. And then didn't you own a restaurant, too, at some point?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a relatively, I don't know if I want to say restless, but I just like to do different things. I like to be busy. I like to be working. I like to be traveling from here to there because I have something to do. One of my fantasies my whole life was to have a really great restaurant, and Italian probably. So when I had made enough money by going, I was doing um, Beat the Clock in Florida, I was on a series called Hidden Hills on NBC, and I was flying back and forth. I thought, you know, and I had a family. I thought, I want to create a legacy for this family, a business. Um, I'm going to make this restaurant happen. So I started doing that, too, and I, it was very crazy, and it put a lot of pressure on who is now my ex-wife to run this stuff while I was flying to Florida and back and forth. But again, the restaurant business is another form of entertainment. I just felt like I had my own variety show every night, and the people who would come in, that's my audience, and we would give them a great experience. So I looked at that as a theatrical production. Um, I was very busy in the late 90s, early 2000s. Now, why would I leave all that when I was working so hard? Well, I had a kid, and I just didn't like the environment of, of Los Angeles to raise my kid. I wanted him to be raised the way I was, with wide open spaces and occasional cold weather and building snow forts, um less status-driven. And that became my identity. I was a dad. And that was the greatest role I could ever imagine. And I really... Didn't want to be searching for the next game show or the next series or all of these things. I felt very selfish doing that. And I thought, if I can fashion a career in the Midwest that makes me happy and, and uh, fulfilling, um,
0: that's what I'll do. And that's what I did. Now, what? how is... I mean, and it is, you know, it's funny because you said about the raising the kids in L.A. I know Gregory Harrison moved up to the coast of Oregon or Washington to raise his kids for the same reason. He was... Basically, he didn't want his kids to be raised around the business. And, you know, when you have success, you know, people sit there and they – you know how it is how people react when you have success. You know, people are always out to get you. And then that comes – even trickles down to your, your kids. I mean that's the bad part. You know, like people may be like, oh, well, right. we become friends with that kid because his dad's this – what, what, what did your friends uh, and your peers, I'm sure your good friends understood, but what did your peers and your agents and your managers say because you were working and your agents and managers were making money off you? So what was their reaction? Were they gung-ho about like, okay, you got to do what you want to do, Gary? Or were they like, well, maybe you should stay just a little longer? I mean, how did that whole thing happen?
1: Well, there were those and there still are those who are going, Kroger, how can you leave this and go to the Midwest? But most of my friends, and by most I mean ninety percent or more, including my manager, saw the sense in it. The the business, fifteen, you know, and still that way now because I talk to my actor friends and they're going, we don't know how we survive. It changed so dramatically. Um, It became very hard to get work now. Even though I was working, I had to look at a twenty plus year career and go, yeah, but I never did get the big shot, did I? I can continue like this, but it's diminishing returns now as I get older. You know, I have to be realistic and go, yeah, but in 20 years I've worked, but it's been at this certain level, and the thrill, like like I was saying, of every day maybe this is the big one. That started to wear thin after 20 years. And I thought, I'm still young enough, I still have enough synapse activity that I could start a new career and maybe go somewhere with that in an environment that wasn't about show business. So, and where I grew up was the perfect target for that.
0: So, so, so when I
1: left, Martin said, Kroger, we get it. My manager still is my friend, and she says, Oh, don't ever come back here. It's even worse than it was.
0: So you decide to move back to Iowa and you got into the ad agency business?
1: Yeah. Yeah, a company was growing here in advertising and I just applied for a job and they said, We know who you are. You're the, the guy that went off to do SNL. Uh what do you want to do for us? They said, well, I don't know, I'll help you make commercials. Great. Gave me a job and I've had this job for thirteen years. How do um,
0: how do the like other you know, that's the the testament's just amazes me like how did the other employees react when you first started because they're probably like wait a second didn't that guy host an the game i mean what was their reaction because it's you're you're a as you know in in the midwest terms you're one of those hollywood big shots is coming back what what was it what was it like when you started working there how did people react to you because most people most people don't know most people don't get to interact with people who've been on TV. That doesn't happen a lot. How how is their reaction?
1: Well, for the most part, and I'm still feeding off that reaction, I'm still given a certain amount of equity based on my past. But it's not like I walk around like I'm George Clooney in this town either. For the most part, people are thrilled that I have my own Wikipedia page. That that (laughs) means more to people under the age of 35 than anything I've ever done. It's like, wow, that guy that works over there? He, he's he's different. But for the most part, I'm another employee. The kind of work that I do here is a little different than most people, but I'm given, I've just looked at it as another employee, which is great. The SNL Hollywood tag really didn't come into play until I ran for office. And then the opposition started painting me, oh, the Hollywood liberal now thinks that he can bring his, Hollywood liberal ways to the Midwest. Never an issue until I ran for office.
0: Now what made you decide to run for office? Was it something I mean, you I mean, your your life is fascinating because you were a utility man in Hollywood and now you're you know, you, you you're a, a nine to fiver per se and you decided what made you decide to follow that route? Because that's so different from your past life?
1: Well, it, it is, and at the same time, there's a reason that we look now to John Stewart for you know political wisdom and inspiration. There's a reason that Al Franken is very, very good and very successful. In fact, there's a long history, obviously, of actors who have turned to, to politics, because the business of acting is what? To look at life. It's to look at the as critically as we can at the foibles, contradictions, hypocrisies and things of life. Well, that's what a good politician should be doing as well. So the skill set lends itself very well. So the question is, why the interest to apply it that way? Well, I've always been socially conscious and politically conscious my whole life. Brad Hall, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, as they prove now with their philanthropic work, um, are all have always been politically minded. Our comedy in Chicago was socio-political commentary. So I've always been interested. So here... Just to keep that interest alive, I wrote a column for the, the newspaper, a, a, a liberal perspective for the newspaper, and I became known as a political voice. And a couple of years ago, I was challenged by someone who said, Kroger, I think it's time for you to take your voice to Washington or at least Des Moines. And so for the last two years, I was running for one office or the other. I, I did lose the race for the state house two weeks ago. Um, but my interest now is very much alive. I'm now looked at as a political figure here in the state of Iowa. I'm writing my column again. Um, I wouldn't say that I fell into it, but it was sort of handed to me in a way. And I really, really, really enjoy this. I, I, I look at my responsibility in this community, uh, to be a reflection of my responsibility as a father. I want to show my boys that this is what people do when they're conscientious. This is what people do when they're civic minded. This is the responsibility of adults to be engaged and to participate in this democracy. And so that's become my mission now is to, um, is to lead by example, is to lead by example of, of, of being a citizen who does the work, who does the research, who goes deep, who is compassionate, who's educated in terms of of what the issues are. And I don't know where it's going to go now, just like I didn't know where my showbiz career was going to go. It sort of took me in a direction, and I'm sort of sitting back to see where this is going to go now.
0: That's so cool. We only have a few minutes left. I got I to gotta ask you one thing, though, because, you know, you came from SNL was sketch and stuff like that. What was it like to see you, yourself, not a character, you, yourself, Gary Kroger, what was it like to see yourself on one of those political commercials? like? They're, they're, I mean, what is that like when you're sitting there watching TV? Because there, I'm, I'm, yeah. I saw so many. Like in LA, some of the, bait, the local commercials were so damn cheesy. I mean, did you ever sit, mm-hmm. sit? Did you ever look at them? Some of them just go, "Oh my god, just shut up!" And I mean, what was, what's it like to see yourself in one of those political commercials?
1: Well, that's that's a great question too because I made two very low budget, of my own very sincere commercials. One with my kids, and other with some local people. You know, endorsing me. And my commercials were very simple. And I would watch them and I go, well, that's Gary. That's me. And, and I'm not being funny. And so it was, it's, it was very disconcerting in a way to see me not being the affable sort of guy that I am by nature, but being a very serious politician. But I could deal with that. What was really screwy was to see the attack ad. Where Gary Kroger, the Hollywood liberal, wants to socialize America or whatever the commercials were, which were completely <laughs> ridiculous. Those really upset me. But it was my son, my 17 year old, who said, Hey, Dad, I just saw an attack hat on you. And I said, Yeah, son, I'm sorry about that. I said, No, it means you're really in the game, Dad. <laughs> they care enough to attack you. And I went, Wow, that's a neat perspective, kid. I guess, I, yeah, you're right.
0: That's awesome. Man, you know, I, 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 want, I want to thank you for coming on today, Gary. I'm glad we got to set this up. Uh, um, so now, do you, t- do you do you tweet, or how can people get in touch with you? What's, what's the way?
1: Well, I, I'm an open book on Facebook. I'm at my 5,000 limit, but sometimes, you know, when someone engages or writes me, I have no restrictions on who can, you know, participate on Facebook. And I've got, you know, Gary Has Issues site. Um, and when somebody, you know, when we get something going, I... I find somebody that became a friend you know, at the drugstore four years ago that doesn't participate with me anymore. I'll drop them to make room for somebody new. (laughs) So so I always Facebook, but Gary Has Issues is my regular blog, and I put a couple of blog posts up a couple of weeks, uh, www.garyhasissues.com. But that's a great way to communicate, to get involved with me, get involved you know what I'm saying start a conversation
0: well that's awesome and uh, I I sent you a friend request so get rid of someone and add me Uh, so anyway there you go man see people so go 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 check out Gary's work follow him get involved listen you know he's it's an inspirational story he's worked and it's great so Go, 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 send him a message on Facebook if you like them. Uh also, people, follow me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have 570 episodes. I recently uh posted the legendary drummer Carmine Apiece, talking about his wonderful career. And uh, you can email me there at Cooper CooperTalk.net. Words with Friends and Instagram or Cooper Talk1. I will play with Words with Friends. Instagram, I put up a lot of promotion for my show, and pictures of food, because as you know, my other website, StopTheSalt.com, when I had my heart problem a few years ago, got out of the hospital, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes for one, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. You can get it at BarnesAndNoble.com or Amazon.com, but get it at StopTheSalt.com, because I make more money, and I will sign it for you. So people... You have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, remember, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only hip as my guest. Don't forget, eat your vegetables, drink your water, take your vitamins. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will talk to you next week.